0: Up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with the King of Roadrunner Australia, John Satterley. Uh, John's career with Roadrunner began in 1995, heading up the Australian office uh, until he was promoted to Senior VP of New Media and Global Business Development in the New York office in the mid 2000s. His current venture, most importantly, is Fortress Melbourne which marries up my interests with metal and video games perfectly. So you'd want to do yourself a favour and check out Fortress Melbourne. Just give it a googs, mate, and check it out. This conversation I found incredibly interesting because Australia as an entity musically and for business is kind of a blind spot for me, so John did a really good job in articulating the experience that he had at such an interesting time in musical history. Anyway, enough of my rambling. It's too early for this shit. One, two, too it up. So let's let's jump straight into it and tell me everything about Fortress Australia because looking at your career history, most of the time the career trajectory of people at Roadrunner is, it stays within the music industry and it stays usually in it kind of like a contractor capacity as as people enter their um, retirement years. But you just yeah. went balls deep into something
1: completely different, which resonates with me massively as someone who plays video games. Oh, yeah, but funnily enough, it wasn't exactly by choice because, um, you know, I was working for Roadrunner in New York and then uh, and Warner Music bought us. And then, you know, one fateful day, which you may have heard already from some of the other staff that were there, you know, we a lot of us just copped a bullet in the back of the head and we were done. So my uh, fated career in the music industry kind of ended rather abruptly without my sort of say in it. I didn't mm. voluntarily uh, eject myself from the music industry. And it was always my dream and passion to be in the music industry. So then what happened was I decided to take up an opportunity back in Australia to work for Village Roadshow, which is one of the biggest entertainment companies in Australia, or sort of been recently bought out. But it was, you know, theme parks, cinemas, movies, distribution, all of that, that I thought I I wanted to have a crack at something that was a little beyond music because of what had happened. I thought maybe it's time to... stretch the wings and have a have a ping at entertainment in general not just music yeah and that went for five and a bit years and then all along I really thought along that period well I work for Roadrunner because I'm my first love and the thing I love most in life is metal and uh, then the second thing I like most in life is video games obviously parking my children my wife and all that I'm talking about my personal my personal uh, fascinations and passions is metal and games, and so I figured I really just have to. If I've done one for the bulk of the first half of my career, then um, and I didn't see that any real chance of getting into anything with metal again for the time being. So um, games was the option, and I'd been thinking a lot about it while I was at, Ro- at Village Roadshow,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, I put some ideas together. To the board at Village, and they just didn't—they didn't want to do it for a whole bunch of reasons, and didn't have the money or the wherewithal and everything. And so, I was really keen to do it, and decided to leave the company and um and have a have a stab at raising the money effectively from scratch and and try to build something. And um, the stars aligned, and I met a guy, a couple of guys who were serial successful entrepreneurs, and then they had all the skill sets that I didn't have about how the hell do you raise money from scratch. Uh, and do that and then they brought a lot of that and a heap of other skills in and we were able to set Fortress up and from, from that in a sort of early 2018 to when we opened, you know, it took two and a half years of planning and building and creating Fortress Melbourne and uh, here we are now, so nearly three years later where, well, without COVID, we would be in a slightly different position but we certainly have had a, had a pretty good run and since opening again, in, we were shut for nine months because of COVID. And then we opened again in January. And since we opened in January, apart from this current week when it's gone to shit again because we've had to close, but the business has just been growing week on week, quite extraordinary sort of growth. So a lot of the things that we believed in have started to be validated, that people will want to hang out and play board games and video games and pay good money to have an extraordinary experience in a in a you know a blue ribbon platinum type sort of land gaming and, and, and arena and whether it be esports or just beers with your mates playing Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons, all of that's part of Fortress. And a lot of the ideas we had a couple of years ago are starting to bear fruit that people have validated and said that is what that is what we want to do. And one way we describe our business these days is that we build pubs for Zoomers. Yeah, <laughs> no, we really do.
0: Yeah, no, that's stuck. So I mean let's Because esports isn't necessarily a brand new thing. It's been going on for a while. There was a a lot of fringe activity in sort of the early 2010s, and then it's become sort of more legitimized, and now it's effectively a AAA industry, or it's at least, maybe if you want to call it AAB, moving into AAA. So what's the ecosphere in in Australia for this? Because it's usually a US-centric operation, isn't it?
1: yeah well i'm glad you asked him because it's not in fact when we started the business we called it fortress esports and those early days when i was pitching ideas before we actually founded the company esports was at the heart of the idea but since we since the business has grown and matured and we've been open esports actually is a is only a very tiny tiny part of our business model and a tiny part of our aspirations and what we hope to do as a business so Mm. Whilst, and then a lot of it's recognition that eSports is focused on the sort of 1% of elite gaming. It's it's uh, professional. It's all about the pinnacle of games experience. Yeah. And we realized that as a, as a business that, that can't that can't sustain a business model, right? It's just not in Australia in particular where, like you just said, the US and the big money and China, there's just not that talent and that level of professionalism and that level of prize money and support. So we had to figure out how do you make a business out of live social video game playing, and it's certainly not through eSports alone. It's Mm. got to come from social grassroots mates hanging out playing COD together over some beers, not not people coming and paying to watch elite, you know, training 10 hours a day type CSGO players who just, that's just not how it works. Just no one's going to, you might get one of those a year. And um, and so our business is all about, like I said, almost like we're building themed restaurants or pubs for Zoomers, Mm -hmm. because Fortress is all about an incredible experience of the characters we created, the fantasy themes in the in the tavern, all of the pieces all combined. Even the esports piece, all sort of the sums greater than the parts, as it were. And that's what you get when you come to Fortress. I think the esports part is. I
0: guess it's mostly repertoire, but if your brand is mostly about setting up the brick and mortar
1: element to that culture, mm. it,
0: that it, that's sort of unique in itself.
1: It is, but we also built a pretty formidable studio, so we have big, fat production and broadcast facilities, so we can actually run competitive. But we often refer to esports as competitive gaming,
2: mm-hmm. so we
1: love yeah. the idea that because to, to, because esports often connotes elite gatekeeping and hard you know, like the average person on the street can't play. Whereas we like the idea that any shit kicker can come and have a ping and, you know, there might be some prize money, not necessarily for the elite 1%, but just turning up on the day and having a good go, you get have great fun, but you might win something just for having a go. It's not certainly not trying to make out that we don't like elite gaming. We do. But just for a business, we have to be able to accommodate and make sure that we're not just appealing to the elite because there's just not enough of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, how many sites have you
0: got then? Is it just the super site at Melbourne at the minute?
1: Just Melbourne, and then we're actually pretty close to hopefully in the next little while we're close to signing a lease for Fortress Sydney. We've got a great property we're looking at for Fortress Adelaide.
2: Mm-hmm. We've
1: got a the models also changed that we've got some plans to build. So those are flagships like Melbourne, where they have a giant arena and an enormous floor plate, like two thousand seven hundred yeah. square meters. They're in, it, Melbourne's enormous. What we also want to start doing a more, um, not hole in the wall, but, you know, when you go to a shopping centre and they've got like a bowling alley and they've got like a holy holy moly, like a mini golf thing, and they've got all those little entertainment sections inside like a shopping mall on the third or fourth floor where you get it all combined Mm -hmm. and there might be a pub. Well, we, we want to start, we've got an idea to bring a sort of truncated version of Fortress into those entertainment precincts in shopping malls so they don't have to be we don't have to build an enormous flagship we could be building something about half the size of a flagship but they could be sitting in those suburban and regional uh shopping centers but they're all networked into the flagship Mm -hmm. so you turn up and you play video games you hang out and do stuff as a member at a suburban fortress and then you Mm can you know if you're a competitor or whatever that an elite event or a grand final or something could be happening at the mothership at the flagship.
0: Yeah. So what are you playing now these days um, as a new personally, just out of interest? Me personally?
1: Uh, well, I'm Funnily enough. I'm, I'm not a good first person shooter player. I like, lo- I like to play cob, but my favorite game of all time is civilization. So oh. I'm, I sort of like a slow, oh, I'm old. So I, I've been playing Civ for 30 years and Civ 6, I would have put, over nearly two thousand hours playing civ 6 and i just love it you know i just keep coming back to it whenever i'm thinking what game can i play I've got a couple of hours spare mm. i just keep spinning up another civ, a civ game and i've grown to the where i can i'm not at deity level but i can win games at immortal and so i have been pretty proud of that and yep. I've, yep. i certainly like to play different civs and testing my skills that you know whether it's trying to play, i've just been playing last night as one of the the Cree civilization to try and win as a in the Cree, i don't know if you play but that's oh no
0: ever since civ 1 civ 1 was the, it yeah. came in as a package with a windows 95 pc which yeah. i got when i was a kid and i have played every single one since then civ 6 is my at the minute i mentioned earlier battlegrounds 3 is my that's my editing um game because you can jump in and out without yeah. much so i can i can edit this later and i'll be probably playing battlegrounds um, 3 but civ 6 is still up there and installed for sometimes i know it's gonna be a slog like yeah, I sure had a, 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 a two and a half hour conversation with Mike Varney from Shrapnel Records last week, I was like, "That that might take a while." So set it up in Audacity, get ready to edit, spin up a play now, get going. It's brilliant. I, I would do another one, right? Would do another Civ set. Would do save seven soon, really, given yeah. their life cycle. But they keep
1: adding more season pass things and things. I'm yeah, not, they were I'm awesome. Forgetting. Those season passes, the, the DLC and the season passes were terrific, right? And then adding all the additions to. Civ 6 like the um you know the the weather or whatever it's called um, um
2: I forget rise, and
1: rise and fall and um and gathering storm and all of that i mean these are just awesome additions that make the game so more interesting so i mean they almost you think what what can civ 7 do you know yeah. i'm waiting for this new game have you seen the new game humankind i've, like I've seen rip. things of it
0: yeah i'll give it's, it a go the curve required to jump put me into another turn-based strategy is mm. quite substantial. One which I don't think I've got the... The thing is, right, this entire Roadrunner project, it, it, it's born of, of two things, right? One, I couldn't get enough mates to start a, a CSGO clan and team, yeah, right? right? Because I wanted to do, like, just, like, local-level tournaments for a laugh. And another yeah. thing is I'm addicted, like, unhealthily addicted to Stardew Valley. So I oh, need really? To, yeah, I, I need played to...
2: That a bit, but I'm not addicted to it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah it, it, this, they just dropped a new update on it, so, which substantially increases like the replayability. So I'm like, I need something else which is going to keep me productive. So that's what this Roadrunner thing came from. But yeah, you nice. should check out Star Duval because the co-op... I have played um, it. No, no, I've got it.
1: I've got it. No, I played I, I it. I meant in, for like, 50 in hours.
0: a professional capacity because the thinking about doing a competitive version of it, like the way that the co-op operates, really? it, it, it can be sort of like manipulated into a competitive nature. I don't know exactly what it is. I think it must be something to do with how you'd measure revenue because it's all revenue-driven, uh, isn't it, in terms of how much your farm can make.
2: Yeah,
1: but I would have thought it's almost the antithesis of the whole ethos of Stardew Valley, which is like Definitely. not at all to like be stressed and compete. It's the whole point of that game is to just chillax and play. I completely
0: agree, which is exactly
1: why the antithesis
0: should exist.
1: Uh, right, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Why not? keep it go. <laughs>
0: But yeah, that's my thing. Oh, Dead by Daylight as well. I'm I'm playing that with. I have to play that with mates though. Otherwise, it's just too frustrating.
1: That's I kind of... I, got, I got it on my list, and I've got to try this game that I just saw is on sale today. That 4x game, a bit like Civ or it's a city builder, the Frost Frost uh, Punk. Uh, uh, yes, that is. For,
0: yeah, I've got that on my wish list, and again, it's yeah. one I've not I've not adopted because I don't want to take the
1: time to learn it when I'm no, in the I middle know. of stuff. But yeah big discount on it. it's like 60 percent off it's yeah at the i thought oh you know i might give i might have to look at that so
0: My mate, he sent me a, a screenshot of the loading screen of that and it's just a like a, a victorian era young girl sort of in a coat looking really yeah. miserable and a yeah, little yeah. like th- a lower third saying this is wendy she dreams of bread and sun and it's just yeah. grim as
1: fuck yeah i, know, I love it so and it's like it's like sieve with, with sieve with bleak grimness. So I thought yeah. I, I might have to check it out. So <laughs> so yeah, there's a few games to look at, and and probably Civ and the, the best game I've ever played in terms of just impact and amazement would be The Last of Us. Right, the, yeah. The I mean, in terms of just story and just to me, that's equal to any movie. Right, in terms of experience. Mm-hmm. hands down, that beats any sort of show or movie that just was an awesome game experience. And The Witcher 3 was pretty awesome too. I had to say the exact same thing about Metal Gear Solid, the first one. Metal Gear Solid, that was good. But I, I didn't put in as many hours, but the, I finished The Last of Us. I mean, Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 were awesome as well. Yeah. But Civ 6 is just that game that I just always just... if I'm, I'll jump in and play those other games, but Civ 6 is just my go-to game all the time as my backup if I'm just... Got some hours to kill. Civ 6 is what I play. Completely agree. Completely agree. So where can people check out Fortress? Uh, well, you can go to fortressmelbourne.com, and uh, especially if you're not in Australia, then it's a you can have a sticky there and have a look at it and see what we do. And it's actually upgrading the website soon, so it'll be a better showcase. But it's a good way to see everything that you can do at Fortress. And anyone who's, a, who's ever listening to this and um was one day when tourists are allowed back into Australia. We're hoping, of course, it's certainly... It, you you, or anyone anyone visiting Australia who is into culture and pop culture and games, It's mm-hmm. I you would not visit Melbourne without going to Fortress Melbourne. It would be absolutely a travesty. Love, we want to make it like going to visit the MCG. Mm. You've got to go to Fortress Melbourne.
0: <laughs> I can't wait. I'm going to check it out. In fact, I don't think yes. we've got anything quite... We had an e-cafe where, where I am in Leeds, um, yeah. which was obviously scaled down. It was just like literally a Starbucks with like a land, you know, they, an upgraded internet cafe effectively. But this weekend, yeah. it's my birthday. So I'm going to go to a, um of one of the, the, the start doing like, like ticketed arcades. So it's like arcades with such a robust catalog of old arcade titles. And it's like yeah, 15 yeah. quid. You just go in for the, like, the entire day. You don't have to put in your 20 yeah. Ps and stuff like that. So yeah. I'm going to try one of those out.
1: Well, we have arcade games and, in fact, Fortress Sydney, one of the things we learned is we need a bigger arcade sort of offering at Fortress. We have some in Fortress Melbourne, but when we build Sydney, we're going to build a big, fat arcade zone
2: Mm. with
1: about 30 or 40 machines. So that'll be a big sort of change in our orientation as well. So there'll be land gaming, competitive esports and Mm. arcade and tabletop and board game and RPG. So the whole thing all under one roof. But, yeah, I mean... We want to build one in um, the UK. We've actually had people approach us and say, when's Fortress coming to the UK? we are like, well, we'd love to be able to get on a plane and kick some tires, but until we can get out of the country, you know, that might still be another year or two, but we definitely have plans to move our brand into other markets outside of Australia for sure.
2: Yeah, I'll
1: we'll definitely keep me posted.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's jump into the meat uh, of my, my my academic adventure, the thing that's keeping me away from esports and study Valley yeah, no, and, and good, that is yeah. Roadrunner, mother flipping records. So, yeah. your your remit in Roadrunner is effectively king of operations and MD of of the Australian branch. This is a bit is a blind spot to me for many reasons, a lot of it's because Australian, uh, musically as, as a culture, it, it deals with music differently. It's a different kind of territory, it's a unique territory. You could even yeah. put it up there with Japan in terms of like how departed it is from say the New York and European operation. Um, yeah. And the way the satellite offices work in conjunction with the wider brand intrigues me because I think yeah. that Roadrunner as an entity and its legacy and its and its function it did something that no one, no other label did. Um, it was an incredibly prestigious indie, uh, yeah. to the point that maybe not ha- hasn't necessarily been achieved since. And that's yeah. what the project's all about: is trying to unpack and reverse engineer that, so we understand how we can administrate metal these days. Yeah, um, sure. So let's go through the chronology, and we'll. I've sent some questions, but really those are kind of by-the-numbers questions about the chronology. Really, we're going to ping-pong and ping all over the place because I'll have loads yeah. of daft, stupid, intrigued questions that most people will find boring, but I find really interesting. No, let's do it. I've got yeah. answers. Let's talk about how you were recruited by by Case and how the mm-hmm. the, the, the opportunity came to your shores.
1: Yeah, so I was uh, working – I did a law degree and an arts degree at Melbourne Uni, and while I was doing that, I worked in record stores around Melbourne. So I worked at some famous stores, one still exists called Greville Records. And I was working at another sort of punk type indie store called Missing Link, that that doesn't exist anymore. And I was just you know opening the stores on Saturdays. I used to clean the toilets at Greville Records. I'd do anything just to be part of the music business even while I was studying. And when I finished my degrees, uh, I was able to get a job. I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I, I chose to work packing boxes at a, a small distribution company called Siren Records, which was a local independent distributor mm-hmm. doing, uh, they would did a lot of imports. So they would be, in those days, Australia had a huge parallel import business where you just, companies would be bringing in um, re- CDs and albums from the US, which were mostly those titles that weren't being made available by the local major labels. So it's
0: mentioned, this, it's worth mentioning what parallel importing is in that sense. It is like effect. It's not quite piracy, but it's just, it's aftermarket supply, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So the major labels in Australia, whether, you know, Sony's or in those days, CBS or whatever, you know, all the different polygram, all those companies that don't exist anymore, really. They, um, they would release the local, you know, repertoire of that they would press you know, vinyl or CDs of, you know, maybe only sometimes 40 or 50% of the, of the entire available repertoire. And the other 50% were either just, they just didn't bother sometimes, right? So they didn't even bother bringing them into Australia or certainly they wouldn't, of course, press them because they might only be selling three a week of a certain title. And so they wouldn't bother and they wouldn't sometimes even staff up a local import comp- like a little import department within their business. And if they did, they were usually poorly managed. So these independent companies like Siren would emerge to, to fill those gaps because, good example, for about four years, um, the entire back catalogue of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, apart from Blood Sugar Sex Magic, wasn't available in Australia locally. So Siren were just selling truckloads of that, boxes of it each week that we were bringing from the US, wow. just selling to all the little record stores around the country who couldn't get it anywhere else, right? So it was also that. Either they couldn't get it, or the price that we could get it in cheaper from the US and land it cheaper and sell it to them cheaper than they were getting sold by the the label out of Sydney or wherever the head usually the major labels are headquartered in Sydney. So we, so I worked there and I just you know I just we just kick the footy and wait for the shipping shipments to arrive on a Monday and then we cut the boxes open and just you know pack pick and pack all the CDs that arrived from the US and then they'd be all shipped off to all the different little record stores or big record stores. In fact, there were big all the big chains in those days yeah. and you'd just be doing endless amounts of stuff. And then about two years into doing that, and I was working in um, in the record stores and I actually travelled overseas for a year, so I took a kind of classic gap year as well. Came back, d- didn't know what to do um, and I'd set up on on invitation from the bosses there they wanted me to start doing local distribution. So there was tons of local bands around Australia that just didn't have distribution, right? And it was like doing what's called a P&D deal, a packaging and distribution deal, mm-hmm. where we would sign them to this deal and they would, it wasn't like a record deal where you pay royalties. It was more like we take a distribution fee and then they'd get the net, we'd sell it into the for, for, for a wholesale price to the stores, mm-hmm. take a distribution fee and then the band would get the balance and that we would recoup the cost of the manufacturing and everything of the CDs and maybe a small marketing fund and then we would pay that, the, the net proceeds back to the bands. Right. So I was into that. I was about 22, 23 and I was you know li- living the dream going out to see bands all the time anyway and there was just a very vibrant scene in Melbourne at the time at the Punners Club and the Evelyn Hotel and all these pubs and bars and the ESPY and all these famous venues, some, some of which don't exist anymore. And I'd be seeing bands all the time. And then I was managing some bands as well. And then it was sort of like, Hey John, this was just a natural thing to set this label up, this little mini distribution label. And we ended up building it up pretty, pretty good. I had about 150 bands on the label wow. at the point when it was a classic. I mean, I was, I didn't know what to do with my life. Really. I was enjoying that. But parents are, you know, getting hassled, like, are you going to be a lawyer one day? And didn't know what to do. And, all I knew I wanted to be involved in music and be in the music industry. So one day there was an ad in one of the weekly street papers, you know, the music street papers. There was in Melbourne, they were called Beat and Impress. And there was an ad, I think it was an Impress or Beat. Basically it was just a little ad in the, it used to be an industry page just about what's happening in the music industry. And there was like a little quarter page ad saying, uh, interna- something like international record company seeking general manager.
2: Okay.
1: And, you know, I'd never applied for a job in my life and I didn't know I was just a kid and I just had a I had the catalogue that like a photocopied stapled catalogue of the siren titles or like my catalogue and some CDs and a letter I wrote
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and I just put it in an envelope and sent it as a sort of with my resume. Heard nothing for about three months, so just forgot about it. And then got a call from a recruiting company that was called, um was run by a guy named Phil Tripp who ran like the Australian music industry directory out of Sydney. And he'd been hired by Shock Records to find a, um, to find this general manager. And they asked me if I'd come in for an interview. I was like, oh, I almost forgot about it. I was like, oh yeah, hell yeah, I'll do that. And uh, I remember just turning up with a pile of my latest CDs that I'd released and, um, was pretty intimidating and they you know interviewed me like a really formal interview and i'd never Mm -hmm. done one before and i was pretty um yeah just green i was just talking about my bands and how i managed bands and how, how i was all immersed in the culture and the bands and that was it and then again i heard nothing for about another month and then david williams who was the boss and founder of shock records i got a call from him and he wanted to meet me at a pub up the road in brunswick and he said can you meet me for a, for a beer and a chat? I said, yeah, okay, I'll come after work. And then we chatted and basically he said, look, I love you, John. Oh, you know, I'd like to, to talk to you about this job. Can you take a phone call from Case? And I was like, who's this guy? And that night I got home and Case called me. And I remember David Williams had offered me $35,000 and I talked to my mate who I was living with and he goes, there's no way, you know, general manager, John, you should ask for $45,000. And I remember saying the case because I didn't really know. And and then I knew it was Roadrunner. And what was funny was, you know, I was, since I'd been a kid, sworn to metal and it was my religion in my life. But I hadn't. And that's for. we'll talk about it some more. But the Roadrunner bands at that point weren't really in my sort of category of bands that I listened to. Mm -hmm. So I was more trad metal guy. Like I was Maiden and Priest and Queensryche and that's my... With the Dio and Sabbath, and that was sort of the 80s tunes. So, I, the only big Roadrunner album that I loved was Burn My Eyes, and I right. thought that, that that was out because this is 1995. Mm-hmm. And so, I knew Burn My Eyes, and I fucking love that record, right? Davidian and, and Old and all those songs. So, I was like, holy shit. So, that was the one record I knew I could talk about, and I was telling Case that how I loved Machine Head, and it was awesome. And um, then I boldly said, look, he said, look, John, I'd love to hire you. I think you'd be great. Would you come? But I said, well, I would case, but I'm just a bit concerned about the salary. I mean, I, I just, you know, I've come out of uni and I think I'm, he goes, well, what do you want? And I said, 45. He says, okay. He said, okay, where can you start? I said, I don't know, as soon as possible. He goes, okay. So I just went, all right, I'm in and didn't know what to expect. And uh, I remember probably a week or so, I, I gave notice of Siren and then I started it at um, Roadrunner, and it was based out of Shock Records. And Shock Records right. had this really ramshackle old warehouse um, where they had all of the album they, were, they did the pick and pack from, but they also had their offices. And it was kind of in this shitty part of inner northern suburbs of Melbourne where there was a, it was in an industrial broken-down estate with a crappy coffee company that, baked, that roasted the coffee beans. that stank the whole joint out every morning. remember rocking up for my first day and david williams said g'day and we met and we'd organized to meet like 9 a.m on the or 10 a.m on the monday and then he goes welcome john here you go and i met andrew mcgee who was the other founder of shock and they just gave me like a cardboard box and they go that's roadrunner records (laughs) and um you're now the boss and i was like oh yeah and by the way you got to meet a guy, Bob Stevenson. Um, he's been working for Roadrunner, and you're now his boss. So I was 24, and Bob was 38. <laughs> right. So that was excruciating. And um, even though we're fantastic friends now, we worked together for every day for 12 years. I don't think he talked to me for the first 12 months.
2: Jesus. Because I, I,
1: I was like, you know, a long haired, you know, just grungy metal scumbag who just somehow got this gig and he was a very dapper ex ex emi he'd like been queen's publicist from emi out of the uk and you know he knew elton john All he, he were all his mates and here he was because he'd migrated to australia and now suddenly he's got this scumbag as he's as the boss of roadrunner and he'd been sort of the de facto chief of roadrunner mm. and um it was pretty it was pretty awkward but anyway, that was my start. That's how I started at Roadrunner. And then it was, yeah, I just had to, I didn't even have a CD player. I was just sitting in a room with 35 other people in a big open plan office. And I just was given a desk. We we're all just sitting there and just a box. And it's like, that's Roadrunner, John, figure it out. Uh, so it's interesting because that's pretty much the experience of the LA office as well.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Just a corner of another office, like <clears throat> presumably case had a network. You said, well, let's yeah. just try it there, and then we don't have to yeah. pay for the brick and mortar. We have to rent or lease anyway, and then if it works, it works. Great. I wonder yeah. why Bob was where he was at. Was it because
1: you clearly knew the territory more? Uh, Case wanted. He wanted me to sign bands, so his main interest in Australia was for us to expand Australia with local repertoire. And I think what won me the job was I actually, I mean, there'd been a lot of, I suppose, people that were competing for the job and I knew at the time some people who were going for the job as the general manager of Roadrunner were people who were in the industry, like maybe some PR people and promo people and even a couple of people. I remember one guy was a a journalist at um, one of those street magazines who was going for the job. But I think I got the job because I actually had signed 150 bands to my label. Like, now, of course, it wasn't like as formal as a record label. It was a distribution company. Mm. But I had 150 bands and I'd bandaged bands. So I, I, to Case at the time, I was the perfect candidate because I talked the talk. I actually had signed and distributed bands and had direct relationships with scores of bands that I was friendly with that I was distributing. So I think that that's what he was looking for at the time.
0: I guess the diff- for you, the difference would have been taking that packaging distribution model, which you had, <clears throat> and just going, all right, well, now we need to add a few percent to actually make money. And that's kind of the, the core difference, right?
1: Well, it was, a, it was a trial by fire. It was a shocking um, kind of early year. My first year was very confronting at learning. I mean, I, I, I didn't do business at, at uni and I hadn't studied economics and I didn't even know what a when i was being told about PLs, like what profit or loss yeah i didn't know what a pnl was and this is 1995 when you know you could there was no wikipedias and all that this is like the the, the computer i started on at shop was using wordstar it wasn't a, it was like a dos machine it wasn't a windows machine and i remember case agreed for me to buy one of those mid 90s apple computers it wasn't a mac it was like an an apple 9500 that had like a it was like a basic Macintosh in the sense of a you know black and white screen and all this sort of shit. And the mm-hmm. internet didn't we didn't have the internet shock in 95. So everything was done by fax. And it was that sort of world that I was in and suddenly I was trying to, you know, I was being asked to put forward a sales budget of and I remember from Holland where the headquarters was, I was just sent a list of all of all of the titles that were being forecast for the forthcoming year. And they asked me to put, like, budgets together for this, like how many albums am I going to sell, how many? How much money do I need and all this. And, I, I mean, i had been working on no, no budgets and hand-to-mouth the, the, the rawest indie world that you could ever imagine. If Roadrunner was indie, then I was coming from the gutter of indie, right, where there was just, you know, 50, if I'd have to ask, to do a a $60 ad in a paper would would be a miracle if I could get that. And then Case was saying, what do you need? And Well, not Case, it was a guy named Stefan Koster out of Holland who was the head of international at the time. He's like, well, John, you know, you need to tell me how many albums you're going to sell for this band. And I was like, Life of Agony, Ugly, I don't even know who that band is. Mm. And so I had a huge learning curve. I remember being sent from Holland and I took them all off the warehouse shelves, the ones that I didn't have copies of, just about... 200 albums, and I remember I bought a little uh portable CD player and just I just rotated. I remember listening to um Bloody Kisses Typo Negative, I, and that's now one of you know one of my favorite albums of all time. But I think I listened to that about 500 times in a, in, in in three months just to sort of soak it in, and, and then even some terrible records that are almost practically unlistable these days, like Life of Agony Ugly, which was the new release of Life of Agony in 95, which is a mm. shocking record. And we and they were asking me how many how many then you're going to sell, and I was like, well, what three hundred, five hundred, five thousand? So those first budgets were an absolute disaster because I had no idea how to position the business or the market or what the yeah. appetite would be. I didn't know, so I was just flying blind with very little um, record formal record business or economic or commerce understanding, and I was just like a just a, a shit kicker trying to sign bands and, <laughs> and fumble my way through. And I, I mean, I was, I guess I was. Reasonably clever, so I was able to sort of you know work it out. I remember studying QuickBooks at all, at, I was in the office till 11 o'clock at night for about two months, just trying to learn from scratch how accounting works
2: because
1: mm-hmm. I didn't even know how to do the local books because I had to now do all the, the accounts receivable and payable. Mm-hmm. So that was that was fun though, like it was a bit that's what's been fun even with Fortress starting a business with Fortress. It reminded me of those early days at Roadrunner when <laughs> just figuring it out as you go yeah. and, um, and just, you know, devil may care attitude. It was kind of fun. What Roadrunner was like in those early days, it was really rough, mm. but Case, to his credit, had huge amounts of belief in me and just, you know, he just he must have been laughing, you know, just letting me go. Just, Don't worry <laughs> about it, John, just go. <laughs> so
0: we had mentioned the Australian operation was, it seemed to be an a and strategy. An A and yes. move to get some Australian local repertoire on the go. That's right. Um, yeah. What's that? What? How important is that to Roadrunner as a global entity? Because let's try, Let's talk about Australia as as a as a as an industry as it stands. Because not a lot of Australia is populated, so you you you've got presumably a few key sites and territories which you're you're measuring, right?
2: Yeah, I mean
1: Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane right there you've got about 60% of the country's population and then Adelaide, Perth and, you know, the rest and then some regional. So the bulk of the business, you know, everyone lives, 25 million people live around the perimeter of the country largely, right? So it's not a difficult territory to manage in that it's not like the states where there's, you know, 500 markets and 5,000 radio stations and Christ knows what else. (laughs) Australia is much more, you know, you, you had some pretty linear paths to market. In those days, you had the big chains and you had the, you know, you had, well, Triple J hadn't really gone national in those days. In the early mid-90s, it just started Triple J, which was one of the most important radio stations right okay. to break bands. Um, and then commercial radio wouldn't touch Roadrunner stuff. Like metal was just not, metal and underground music, we had like punk band like Shelter. They just weren't in those mid-90s. They wouldn't touch those bands. And mm. not like America we had active rock where they would play Christian woman, for instance, to death, right? They wouldn't touch. You just would never get that on radio in Australia. So from the very beginning, the the challenges we had were that we didn't have radio markets that were mirroring what you had in the US or even in the UK. Mm. We had in Australia in the mid-90s some publications, like we had a version of, we had an Australian Kerrang! for a while and we had a magazine called Hot Metal Okay. Which went for a few went into the '90s, went for a few years, and that was pretty good. And you know, JB Hi-Fi and well, that actually hadn't really blown up as a big chain, but Brashes was a big chain and Sanity. These chain stores that existed in Australia had some of them had hard rock and metal sections, and a lot of people would just find their new music by going there.
2: Yeah.
1: So what what it was clear to me was that, and to to case a surprise because I was clearly a metal sworn to metal guy, the first band I signed to Roadrunner wasn't. A metal band. It was a alternative hard rock punk a- kind of anarchist kind of, kind of band called Non Intentional Lifeform. Yep. And then I signed a and then I signed a a punk excuse me a pop band an indie pop band called Effigy. Hmm. So the two first two bands I signed to the label were not at all metal. Although a lot of people have now told me, and I think it's true, that Non Intentional Lifeform was like System of a Down three years before that band yeah. came out. I get that. And non-intentional, yeah, non-intentional life forms become a bit of a, a famous, you know, amongst the hardcore underground people acknowledged that band was extraordinary, right? And they were, they just kind of imploded. And Effigy were the same. We had Effigy between 95 and 98. They blew up as a really quite a big band and then they imploded, which was horrible, which was life lessons for me about, um, you know, A&R isn't just about good records, it's about relations and how how keeping an eye on how they internally the bands work with each other because they just, just the bands had internal strife and it went to shit. Yeah. So, um, nonetheless, w- you know, the strategy for our A&R in Australia wasn't really just signing metal because metal, we can talk about it later about my, my view in hindsight about Roadrunner in general, but mm-hmm. at the time in the mid nineties, I felt that the right direction was for us to go after a more indie, sort of, you know, alternative and indie focus because we had more chance to get radio with Triple J and the alternative, like local Melbourne stations like Triple R and PBS. And in Sydney, they had, um, I can't even, the stations escaped me, but every capital city of Australia had very vibrant and very influential uh, local sort of community radio. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, we had a better chance of having success if we were selling if we were and these were great bands it wasn't a cynical like just you know a cynicism it was these were good bands and i felt that this would be a better way a better shot for us and yeah. at the time i remember when i signed nil there was a lot of talk before i arrived at roadrunner that i was going to everyone was telling me i was going to sign this band called damaged who were the biggest metal band in melbourne and one of the biggest metal bands in australia and i kept getting told everyone kept giving me these rumors like we're going to sign Damaged, and i said I'm not signing damage. Everyone keeps telling me I'm going to sign them. I'm not signing them. And, Why not? Uh, and they were because they were sort of like full on extreme grindcore and extreme metal. And I didn't mind them, but they just had zero commercial, just zero commerciality at the time. Yeah. They just wouldn't, just would. And, and I knew that Case would never have agreed. And Monty wouldn't. And Monty was obviously um, seconding a lot of these bands. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, and you know, Monty's one of my mates and we've known each other for twenty five years and, and he laughed because he hates everything that I ever signed, but he pretty much hates everything that most people sign apart from whatever he signed. Not not fully true, but you know, I, I don't think anything I ever signed he liked. And um but that but then again Monty's a very um you know, US focused fella, right? He just wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily he just didn't understand the conditions of our market. But I wouldn't disagree that most of the metal bands that I sent his way were shit, and I'm glad he didn't let me sign them. And, yeah, that's for another conversation. But metal in Australia, for, for me, there's it, been a, quite a few good metal bands, but I've never felt that this has been, you know, for a country of 25 million, if you compare Australia to, say, Finland or Sweden, we have more people by miles than they have. Mm-hmm. yet We've not ever developed a metal scene anywhere near... The scandinavian or the finnish or whatever i mean it's just not not close and yeah. you kind of wonder what's and i've got a lot of theories about that and it's it's unfortunate because i would have loved to have left the legacy where there was you know powerful and incredible metal bands that had been signed and i did sign a few over the years at roadrunner but none really ended up mirroring the kind of success and not even close to what the world's seen from other countries so, taking a like a step back, so when you
0: so those are the cha- the market challenges, it's not like not necessarily commercial viability buy- for metal, and you do the right thing by kind of expanding the horizons of the label, which is what they were doing in New York anyway. they were going like an alternative and indie way. So it yeah, kind of but... makes sense. but so let's put that pull that back to your first week where you're like, shit, I don't know how to throw a budget together with these sales, yeah. but obviously over time, you're realizing what you're up against. Yeah. Do you eventually, how does how do you then start liaising with the the main sites like in Amsterdam and New York, and then be able to start providing credit, credible budgets, incredible yeah. output? How does that transition happen?
1: Yeah. Well, that's funny because I started working for Roadrunner in I think September of '95, and then in December I was um, flown over to Amsterdam for my first meeting, where that was when I first met Monty and 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 all the team in in Amsterdam. And you know what was ironic was. Only a year earlier in in December or September of ninety four, I'd been in Amsterdam backpacking, sleeping sort of rough in a shitty hostel. And <laughs> one year later I was working for Roadrunner, sleep, you know, in a nice hotel in um in Amsterdam living the dream out, you know, whereas I remembered when I'd been there I couldn't even afford a beer and I was you know, I couldn't even afford a 20 a 20 gilder throw at the coffee shop and um and here I was a year later living like like for me I was 24 thinking I was the king of the world as a record company executive for this international you know record company that was a metal label it was like my dream right and I was there I was and so I met everybody and that was my first big introduction to what Roadrunner was and the culture, and I mean, I remember going out with a bunch of the crazies from all the bosses. You know, Hank, who was the boss of Germany, and um, uh, his name. There was a fella who was the boss of France, who was a wild guy, and Alexandra. Uh, no, it was. Oh. It will come to me because Nora was the boss for years after he left and he was a great guy. His name will come to me. And then we had a fella from Japan, Shuska, who was there. We had all the global people and Monty and we had a guy, um, a Scott Givens from, and Mark Abramson and some of those guys were in Amsterdam. It was all the kind of, you know, the guys who I, I grew up with in the Roadrunner team from the 90s. And I remember going out one first night being there and we were hitting one of the bars in the red light district getting initiated shots of jaeger i mean it was awesome right i was just there i was going holy shit how did this happen and um meeting the guys from um in those days you know metal was so big in holland and in europe as well like there Mm. was dynamo and there was um the holland had two metal mags like ard shock i think was the name of one of them and it was just a the culture was massive around metal and just yeah, I remember just all the merch was awesome. I met um, Angelique, who was the head of Blue Grape merchandising in um, Holland, and just seeing all the T-shirts, and I was just like, fuck, this is just exactly what my life, everything I wanted in my life was here, right, just <laughs> in this culture, with these bands, with these people who are all um, all in the same sort of world as me. What was always interesting, though, and that was the source of tension between myself and Case. In a, in a good way, but it was definitely tension for 15, for 17 years because I worked for Roadrunner. What 17 and a half years mm-hmm. was that um, that case was never metal was not his religion. That that yeah. was always the tension, right? That was always the at the at the the, the 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 perhaps the the story of your podcast or the story of Roadrunner Records is the fascinating tension between the founder and the people and the fact that most of us who were the the lifers were sworn metal guys and that was what we believed we wanted with the label what we wanted to fashion and what we felt was the right course of action and you know that's to be discussed but the um the ultimate end of roadrunner as we knew it when warner bought us and everything else those last my five years in new york were certainly the story of like just fighting that problem that you know saying if we only double down and be true to our Mm. roots and what we are as a metal label we could conquer the world Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: that was that we lost that argument right and that was the but in the in the mid 90s when we were thriving with yeah with machine and fear factory and uh and typo negative and all these classes sepulture of course Mm -hmm. i mean my first record the first big record that i released was in february 96 so i'd been working since august or september and the big album and the thing that we were really meeting about in december of 95 was the forthcoming roots album right and and that was like the the whole point of that international meeting really was the playback session of roots yeah and the whole marketing we spent a whole day talking about marketing roots and yeah, all of us were just absolutely fucking just floored by how good this record was. Like, just this is a watershed, right? Mm -hmm. And um, to that end, when I got back to Australia, we mounted a mighty marketing campaign, the likes of which would never have been seen ever. And I can say that because I've got evidence to that effect. In the history of Australian music industry, we put the biggest to that date marketing campaign around like a proper metal record. I'm not talking about fucking Aerosmith. I'm talking about like a genuine underground metal record. Yeah, And we shipped platinum of that record. So we shipped 70,000 records. David Williams and the guys at SHOP were, couldn't, it was unbelievable. And we debuted the album at number two and we were fucking beaten by, um, I think it was something like Oasis, right? Like one of the biggest <laughs> records of the century. And we be either that or Alanis Morissette or something that was like the the pinnacle of mid nineties. Yeah, we got beaten by that, and we came in at number two. And we, you know, it was Sepultura week. It was the big, biggest fucking thing you've ever seen. And um, that was as a, another tangential long story. That was how I managed to later secure a deal when I took. I, I by the end of '96, I took Roadrunner out of shock. And um, I signed a deal with Sony to be our distributor. And the reason why Sony gave us such a good deal was Dennis Hanlon, who was the boss at Sony, was so flabbergasted that we delivered this band he'd never heard of, Sepulture at number two, and, and, and went double platinum. He just wow. was like, fucking... I mean, I've got, the, I've got the platinum record just here hanging on my wall. Wow. Um, he was like, this, these guys must be just rainmakers. How the hell does a little label out of a hole in the wall in Melbourne... Make an underground metal band like Sepultura go to number two in the strain charts, mm-hmm. and um, and that was an unhappy. I Had a bit of a fallout with the guys at Shock at the time, but <laughs> Dave, Dave, Dave's a mate of mine now, and it's all water under the bridge. But certainly 25 years ago, it was pretty hectic when I moved the business out of Shock because Dave had actually, you know, hired me effectively and recommended me to Case. But in the, it, what had happened was I didn't feel like Shock had the ability to distribute the the records to the level of ambition I had for the business. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, so many records that I wanted to see sort of shipping the volumes that I believed that Sony could do and Shock just weren't able to do that at the time, I didn't think.
0: Really? And, okay. Uh,
2: hence,
1: hence, we moved to Sony.
0: So this is where your credibility comes in—not only your credibility, but Roadrunner as a as an entity in Australia. It comes through Sony because uh, presumably the resources in the distribution are allowing you to have a much more seasoned, refined sense of what's going to move and what's not going to move, <clears throat> and that informs your relationship with Roadrunner head offices and things like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had Kat definitely, and then you know, I moved the office, I took our business, I took ourselves out of the shock offices because I wanted to have our own identity. And we signed a lease on a separate property. Like we built it, we put an office in the heart of Melbourne in Fitzroy, you know, really, well, when we went in there, it was a dead street with nothing, but now it's hipster. It's ground zero of every hipster in Melbourne. So we can lay claim to the fame that we had an office on the, on that street before anyone went there. And uh, we were there on Gertrude street for about five years and, that was you know by setting up our own standalone office case came down and helped me with the negotiations with shock and Sony and then I but I did the deal with Sony myself in the signed it myself and everything else um, mm-hmm. that was a real big step forward because then we built up a separate and by then we had a, I went it was just me and Bob but by then we had a staff of about six because I'd been hiring like even everything from a bookkeeper right through to um, you know some promo more promo and you um, some other things but even then the early signs of some of the challenges with case and what he wanted you know were becoming apparent that caused me and him to butt heads a lot was in holland in 96 they had a giant hit with a song called i want to be a hippie by Technohead, which was a dance like they had this whole big dance movement coming out of coming out of holland it was called something like gabba or something right yeah yeah and um, case was hell bent on us putting up, standing up a dance division, and
2: signing a was dance not, act.
0: That's every every satellite office had like a, a, a dance yeah.
1: imprint. Lafayette in the UK, um, I think it was Burtsom yeah. in, in. Well, Poland. Mark Palmer in the UK signed a dance act called Baby Fox that we were obliged to release. So even A right. and and they wanted, so I, Case obliged me as well to actually hire an a r manager for dance, which I had to do under duress because I didn't know anything about that culture and had no interest and just went, well, how the fuck am I supposed to do this? It's like that. And it was that begin. it was just like this brand tension, right? Where mm. I would know going into all that when I would go into a meeting at Sony, these people weren't, they would laugh at me when I would put a dance track on because we were like, obviously not, that label and they didn't. Yeah. they didn't want to do business with that. They wanted to do business with us, with more sepulturas, not some weird dance record that we thought could be a hit. So it was very hard to do that. Is is that
0: tension? Is that the productivity of roadrunner though? If something, if something can't get past case, if your pitch can't get past case, then it's not viable at all. If you as a metalhead can't sell a particular product to an opera fan. Then it's not going to get signed off. Is that the strength of the brand? Is that the strength
1: of the the back office uh, You could say that, although I'm sure Monty and others would have views that would conflict. Because I mean, we missed some big bands like Ramstein. We missed Pantera mm. because those bands were just something Case didn't see at the time. And I know that. Yeah. I mean, look at Pantera. Look at Ramstein. Right? I mean, just go- 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 Goliaths that would would have changed that would have changed Roadrunners. Um, fortunes long before probably, um, well, certainly long before Slipknot and Nickelback. Yeah. So, um, but I would think that, yeah, I mean, there's a certain, I mean, look, the, the thing I would say, and I would, you know, Case knows it because I love Case. He was like a sort of father figure for me, you know, he's like just mentored me for that many years. And it, him and I had huge debates about it. And, and, but when I was 24, I didn't know shit, right? And he was like 50-something and I'm 50 now. And I see 24-year-olds in my company who I love and respect and think are wonderful, but when they put something to me sometimes, I look at it and go, I'm not doing that. Mm. And I I just look at it and I think often that feeling that I know what it feels like to be them because I was that kid. And I can see a little more. I've got obviously some blinkers, but I also have experience to know that that's just not. So the things that Kay said no to me on for the most part were the right decisions for him to make, and the right decisions for the business at the time. Mm. And there's not a lot of ones that I would say we missed it, and it was a disaster. And I wish we had have, um, I wish we hadn't have done that. They certainly not when I was in my 20s in those early days. Later, when I was in New York, there were certain uh, forks in the road where I made passionate pleas to Case and Jonas and the others, like almost on my knees, pleas about. What I felt was right for the company strategically that was coming from a 36 year old or a 37 year old, not a 22 or 24 year old. That by then, after being immersed in the business and, the, and being a senior, senior exec in New York, I felt like I had a seat at the table. I did. I was the third in charge of the business in New York. Yeah. So um, I, I was like, um, felt I could say lots of stuff about that and to, on deaf ears mostly.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Was speaking more about the, the the territory itself and speaking to the conflict, was there a, was there an isolation factor as well? Because if I'm understanding correctly, your your signings, not a lot of them make international distribution, do they?
1: Yeah, no, none, and that was one of the problems. But probably in the end, not a problem where Roadrunner ended up. But the case had obviously aspirations for um, for us to have all these local bands and that there would one day be a, you know, that this would be a great source of additional repertoire. So it wasn't all reliant on New York and, and the signings out of there. But in actual fact, what it was a classic case of case, having the right, certainly the right strategy. And it was a good idea, but the infrastructure to support that wasn't there. So yeah. Monty, Monty and the others were still absolute gatekeepers. And again, not blaming it. was fine. Right. They, they would just look just what the fuck is this? I'm not, Putting out some garbage, shitty band from Melbourne or Sydney. Why would I do that, right? I've got fifty other records coming my way from from my signings and all these other demos, and that I'm not going to worry about that. Or they'd say rightly, well, John, you know, you'd come and see us when you sold twenty thousand records, right? And and even then, because again, in those days, the markets weren't the, the understanding of the Australian market wasn't such that. If I sold 20,000 records, that would be a massive amount of records because a gold album is 35.
2: Mm-hmm. So if
1: I had gone to New York and said, well, I did sell 20,000 and that's like selling 300,000, they would go, nah, you just sold 20,000. Right. So um, so it was really, the, the, there was a lot of gatekeeping and I don't resent it. Uh, and I, in fact, m- for the most part, probably think it was, for the some, of the some of the stuff, a very good idea. But what was the problem was, Case wanted all this international repertoire to thrive and there wasn't a lot of ability to sort of advocate for that internationally or to, and as you, you can imagine, culturally, I mean, if Case just sort of bent people's arms and said to, you know, New York, we don't, I don't give a shit, you're releasing John's album, good luck with that, right? Like what mm-hmm. kind of treatment is that record going to get? It's going to get nothing. And it, so in, And I think that's always the case with, an, with a record company where it's about people's tastes and subjective view that you're just going to have a lot of gatekeepers and i think that's probably for a good reason and i think there's almost an inherent challenge or almost impossible challenge unless the territory in question can deliver a hit on a plate to ask another territory to try and break your band for you Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous and i and i it took me a few years to, to, to absorb that fact, but I absolutely believe it. And I, and I, so I've got no hard feelings that my records didn't ever get released.
0: I think this is like an, it's a very indie circumstance as well. There's proximity, there's politics, and there's simply working hours, isn't there? You got 40 working hours in a week conventionally by contract, but you're actually, you're probably working 60. And most of those are going to be backed by the, you're going to be backing bands, which you're absolutely passionate about and came across your desks. So if, if something lands in from, you know, return address is, is in melbourne is going to be difficult to, to ascertain the backing
2: yeah yeah
1: and so i and, and i might have been pissed off when i was younger and my i thought that i was a genius a and R genius but in all the bands that i signed over 12 years in australia i you know only one went gold
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, behind crimson eyes right which okay. was the last band that i signed and um and you know that was that was very successful but Outside of that, most of the bands, and a lot of them I love, some of them just broke up. I mean, NIL and Effigy could have, I'm certain, if they hadn't have just exploded, they could, as in well, imploded, they would have exploded. Um, Declan did they, all right. They right. chemistry.
0: Yeah, Declan did all right from NIL. You're He's going to break.
2: He's it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. writing on yeah. the the witcher
1: doing all sorts of yeah yeah it's crazy he's a, he's a remarkable talent and i had my um funny i had my 50th birthday party um a week ago or a week and a bit ago uh, here in melbourne just before the lockdown hit and um i had andy from nil get up and guest on guitar and do um just do um war pigs do lead guitar on war pigs and i had pete from effigy get up and sing some songs so yeah, it was uh, great to see those guys and, and still kicking ass. And I had another band of mine, Elephant Gun, that, um, yeah. that I signed to Roadrunner that came in and, you know, Todd, Todd is an amazing singer, got up and sang some songs. So, yeah, all the guys are there and it was all good fun. And, Should have recorded um, it, a
0: Roadrunner Australia Reunited. That's a, that's a, a bit like yeah. it.
1: Yeah, maybe for my fifty. I don't know how, you know, it's all... It's all fun nostalgia but it was good to see all those guys and um remembering that there was a lot of talent right it was just um just a hard market and there's the conditions in Australia were very difficult for Roadrunner to break bands because we had a well we had an okay relationship with Triple J in the 90s but then in the 2000s when um Richard Kingsmill took over as the programming director at triple j it all just Mm -hmm. went to shit i mean we couldn't get records on he doesn't like he didn't like our didn't like metal don't think he liked me much and um (laughs) you know and i didn't like their i didn't like triple j and i didn't like their ethos and i didn't like much at all about it and so we sort of had this very challenging um relationship where we couldn't get a lot of records on and that was troubling and hard all the publications died so what I did was I set up a record I set up a website called metalshop.com.au um in 2000 that became for a couple of years the biggest metal website on the planet. Wow, it was massive. And we set up a um, set up a MySpace type thing before MySpace existed called The Beast where people could sign up and put their demos and their band profile up. And we had 100,000 bands put, put their profiles up. Did it have a European um no it didn't we had it, what happened was it became a victim of its own success and in those days before there was amazon and everything um the server bills were running at ten thousand a month and uh case didn't it wasn't making any money because it was really just a marketing it didn't it wasn't selling anything there was no ad business yeah so we were, we were obliged to close it which was a heartbreaking thing
0: i swear i got my whacking open air tickets from a metalshop.de obviously being deutschland yeah so So metal
1: shop was massive we ran that for about four years and uh that was we did a lot of web and digital marketing in those early days which is how i got good at digital and and new media and whatever so we were forced to because there was just no channels to market our records all the papers died all the mags died no radio no radio would play us apart from the specialist shows Yep. So everything we ever released, we had to kind of market on our own. And that made us, you know, as a team, I think it made us exceptionally good marketers. I mean, I think that the team we had in that, in the 2000s, when, before I left for New York, were just unbelievably good at marketing music because we got no favors and no help from anyone.
0: Evolution through struggle. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's, it's so crazy. This is, this. I'm. you know what? You were one of the first names that i put on my list to like, have a chat with but i was like i feel like i need to school myself a bit first but i'm actually glad i just went in to both feet because it's so interesting to understand like how different australia is to the rest of the world and you wouldn't have thought it because you think Roadrunner a brand Roadrunner, are a very reliable brand worldwide it's like well it's not as simple as what you see uh, when you look at it in terms of like a new york operation and it's as big as it could possibly be it's like nah, it's different right. everywhere with that in mind did I read somewhere you had a, a, either a relationship or you worked with Japan on some things? Like a, there was like a territory, like an Eastern
1: territory. Um, no, I worked. I was this. I looked after Southeast Asia for about five years. Right. So we not Japan, but for all of Southeast Asia, so Thailand and Korea and um, you know, Philippines, those markets. And so I would go over and Hong Kong, Singapore, and we were trying to set up little micro label sort of presences in those markets obviously not standalones but just building up the roadrunner presence within the sony usually was i think it was mostly sony who were our distributors across Mm. asia and then just you know trying to get profile for the artists and certainly in the early 2000s it was mostly around getting more you know we knew that nickelback should be getting more coverage and it did and we got you know we got some big album, big gold records and stuff and in, in those territories. But even then, piracy was really starting to, to crunch the businesses in Asia. I mean, you know, those um, minor territories like your Indonesias and your Philippines and Thailand were just getting murdered by piracy in the early 2000s. It was all the Khazars and, you know, Napsters and all this sort of shit and whatever yep. Asian variants there were of that. So it was always pushing shit uphill, basically, in those territories. So that was my relationship with Asia. I was, Case sort of commissioned me to do that for about five years, um, which was interesting. And New Zealand was part of my remit as well. We, we right. Universal was our distributor in New Zealand. We got some really great um, runs on the board there. With, you know, it was obviously the big, the big ones. When Slipknot hit in 99, 2000, then the world changed for Roadrunner materially mm. because there was a patch in 98 where things were looking pretty fucking grim. I mean, the, I think one year I was looking at our release schedule going, I think the best record we've got this year is Coal Chamber. Yeah. And, I mean, that's telling you something, right? If, you, if, you're, if your hero album for the year is Coal Chamber, you've got, you, it's not looking great. And um, Case had also made probably, I don't know whether, you know, you call it a strategic mistake or... Uh, sort of a, a little juncture where they bought Roadrunner bought a label in Holland called Arcade Music, and tried to rename the company RAM, which all of us just refused to do. I mean, we kept getting these memos from Holland going, "We need to see RAM on your this now." It's like fuck no, I'm not doing that, right? Which showed sort of the power of the of the territories. We would just say, "We're not. I'm not doing it." And yes. I, said, I think I said to Case once, we're just not doing it, Case. If you wanted that to happen, then you may not have a company here because we we'll just dropped the tools because we're just not doing that. Mm-hmm. No one wants to call this Roadrunner arcade music called Ram. And then they were sending repertoire our way like Dutch pop singers and Schlager, which was like this Dutch sort of um, drinking songs and fucking, you know, a pop, a, a, a kid's pop thing called Bubbles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just looking at going, what is this? And Ram, what is this? And it was just a mess. And sure enough, it, I think it really hurt the business for a bit. And then when Slipknot came, it kind of washed all those sins away, right? We just,
2: yeah. we've
1: been fumbling around and there have been some, some repertoire mistakes and some strategic errors and then Slipknot exploded and holy shit, right? You know, 2000 was a monster year. Yeah. because we had the biggest metal band on the planet and that slipknot record just went like triple platinum in Australia or something mad and then we put out a dv a, a vhs and a dvd that went like platinum 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 it was just fuck this is like you know i remember you were doing 10,000 slipknot albums a week this is crazy was stuff.
0: it was it like roots all over again
1: bigger than roots yeah cuz roots sold to a sort of receipt what 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 Roots was was like the culmination of a band's career because Chaos AD and and Arise and those records had sort of built the band up and then Roots was kind of like the cherry on top, whereas what Slipknot was was just this fucking huge tidal wave. of, And then they toured February 2000, which was still one of the most insane tours and the most crazy shows I've ever been to. And we did in-stores where we had like riots and... 5,000 kids trashing the record store. I mean, it was freaking still, I still have PTSD about that stuff. And um, and Slipknot was like, you know, just, just changed the whole company's, the nature of it. So Australia became one of the biggest territories for Slipknot. We sold just truckloads of it. The band toured a lot. And then Nickelback happened a year later. And then we were, one of, we were the first country in the world uh, to go platinum with How You Remind Me. And we had the band tour, touring Australia in September, just a week after or a week, it was a week after um, September 11, Yep. Two weeks after, they were in Australia before they before the whole record had exploded in the States. Mm-hmm. And so we were we delivered a platinum record and a and a platinum single before the US went platinum. I so we were the first country to break nickelback, and then that record just went berserk, and then nickelback for the next seven years, six years in Australia was just.
0: It's interesting because like the Nickelback, I see as the culmination of that, you know, you talk about the 98 period being reminiscent of you have your flagship acts and then these things underneath that are trying to break through like your alternatives, like your blue mountains, um, um, moon seven times, things like that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Nickelback was the logical conclu- conclusion of that, I think, because that's where Roadrunner did what he said. It, well, what he tried to do, which was we want to have like a more of a contemporary rock yeah. flagship. That's what Nickelback was. And then Slipknot was a metal outlier, which was somehow just culturally penetrative and just took yeah. everything away. <clears throat> so when you have yeah. those two giant flagships in Australia, yeah. does, is the dynamic shifted so much? Because obviously you already had like Sony being interested from the roots uh, For the credibility of roots, but now is it like okay? If there's a year where Slipknot or Nickelback don't put a record out, it's going to look shit.
1: Hmm. Well, by then we were already we were distributed by Universal in um, right. like we moved from Sony to Universal actually over the course of that um, arcade stuff. So arcade uh, nah, okay, was the Sony period. It was two thousand and one, two thousand and two when we moved over to Universal because Case had sold part of the business to IDJ. Mm-hmm. And um, we moved to Universal, and they sort of picked up the slack—or not, it was not slack. They just picked up the ball and kept running with the Nickelback record, and uh, and um, Silver Side Up that was. And then we yep. we um, we just kept going with Universal for about well, it would be four years five years and then we moved to Warner just before I went to the US we moved we had to move to Warner because of the Warner deal yeah. the Universal were awesome and they just you know then we did um, the follow up to Silver Side I'm going to forget all the names Long, Long Road Long Road right and then that was gargantuan and then we did All the Right Reasons which was yeah, just just had to get three records in a row that were just so massive we went mm. five times platinum with All the Right Reasons yeah. and you know um and How You Remind Me ended up being the third at the time, and I don't know if it's still the case, the third highest-selling single in Australian history. Mm. So, I mean, it was we did 214,000 physical CD singles.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's just in Australia. It's just hard to – I tell the kids these days, I mean, they don't even know what a CD single is, but I, I say to some of my staff at Fortress now who are record company kids who've come out of the music industry and just – but yeah, just like, can you imagine people paying $5 for a CD single? And we sold 210,000 of them. Yeah. It's just beggar's belief. But that's just how big it was. It was so big. And I never, um, I loved the Nickelback guys and they supported Australian market and they did anything we wanted. They would, you know, they, they always came here. They would do phoners. They just loved it. And, you know, became really good friends with them and they just did whatever we asked. It was so awesome. And I never, you know, people often tease me about, John, you know, you, you, you brought Nickelback in Australia and, da, 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 and you know, Nickelback, Nickelback, because it become obviously for some, they were always a bit of a joke. And I said, well, the, the one benchmark with Nickelback was the day the hipsters stop hating Nickelback is the day the business is done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the more hate, the more we could just take it to the bank, baby. I just love the hate. <laughs> and I used to like the records and I liked the band and I liked the whole thing. And I was just like, you know, just the hostility we got from the triple J world was wonderful. And it was just yeah. it was personally the vindication that Nickelback gave all of us because it it spoke so much to the ethos that in Australia we built as a company, which we really did thrive. By this stage we had a team of about 14 in in in, in Melbourne. So we grew the business quite quite nicely. And we had a we had a really powerful ethos of of us versus them, and I know that that's yeah, a cheap and pretty hackneyed sort of um, yeah. No, you know, it's, it's uh, a metal ethos. Ideology. but it was an ethos, and it was one that we really fostered about like no one likes our music, no one, all the cool people think that our, our shit's no good. No one likes metal. No one, everyone hates Nickelback, and fuck is all because we're selling truckloads of it to the kids, and we used to love that, and it was yeah. so. Yeah, we would just really embrace it and love it that there was that our, that lots of our bands people didn't like. It's yeah. wonderful. I still love it.
0: <laughs> that speak that speaks to the legacy of the label massively. Because you know it, it's not I don't think it's a cheap tacky ethos us versus them because the the game's rigged. The game's fucking rigged. So yeah. when you when you sell some of the people fucking hate. Poesia, yeah.
1: you know what I mean? It was so good. Yeah. And it was really nice. And so, you know, we and then you'd go to a concert and it'd be, you know, 15,000 people in Sydney or Melbourne singing every Nickelback song. You go, here you yeah. go. This is like, there's the, there's the, this is, these are the, clearly the haters are wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah, and it
2: yeah. Was really good.
1: So, um, and it just afforded, I mean, what happened then, of course, it just allowed it, that those successes, we never lost the um, indie, um, Certainly in Australia, before I went to New York, we never, we never lost that independent spirit. We just stayed. We had our own office. We just kept doing our own thing. We used to mm-hmm. host parties in our garage downstairs. We used to do after parties. One day we had, um, after Slayer toured with Machine Head, in, I think it was 2004, we had a mighty party with Kerry King came afterwards and the Machine Head guys and we were sh- do shots of vodka. It was just fucking huge, right? We used to do mm-hmm. stuff like that. Killswitch engage guys came. We used to do all this stuff. It was great, and bands. What it meant was bands like Killswitch and those bands that were more up and comers, or that we we really had an affection for. We now had more money and more wherewithal to get the message out about those bands.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, it was really nice then, not to have to like put a marketing plan together for three thousand dollars. You could have a swing for the fences with some bands. You could go like, let's really back this one. And they didn't always pay off, but that's the music industry, right? We would, yeah. one of them would, and some. And Killswitch was a great example of a band that really did, you know, build themselves up out of an underground scene, and then end of heartache was humongous.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How does it? How was What were you feeling when the IDJ deal came in? Were you thinking, "Oh fuck, here we go"?
1: Yeah. Well, Case rang me and. Um, I remember I was just sitting in my garden one afternoon and he rang me from, from Holland and he was like, oh, John, i just got to tell you something about that. And I was like, oh, man, and now I've got to move from Sony to Universal. Just when Nickelback was exploding, it was a bit challenging. And then it was probably worse was when he then did the deal with Warner because then we spent we spent four or five great years with Universal and I've still got lots of good friends there. And they did a fantastic job. And then it was like, oh, now we have to move from it was Sony, then Universal, then Warner. And... You know, it was starting to get even then. Fortunately, the original Warner deal wasn't one that encroached on our freedom. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the last two years in New York when Warner bought out the whole thing pretty much that, nice. the axe started went, to drop. Yeah, and the world changed. And suddenly, HR guys from Warner are wandering around. And, you know, the whole thing changed. Yeah, the mm-hmm. whole cult changed. Yeah.
0: How are you doing for time? I've taken up waste. Uh, uh, can, no, I'm good, mate. I can keep, keep tracking along perfect how who signed airborne was it berman
1: yes well they were signed in australia by a local label and then or and then major he signed the rights outside of anz
0: that's how it happened then it wasn't it slipped through your fingers it was already an entity already part of another entity and that's how it got picked up by yeah that mate, that makes Even sense that. so let's talk about how you migrated into a digital role which is obviously your bag now. So it's, it's it was quite well. You've, yeah, you clearly got stuck in that world, having been uh, doing it for effectively sixteen years in, under multiple disciplines.
1: Yeah. Um, well, basically, like I said before, it was just out of necessity. We we had all the channels to market were drying up. All the ways to promote the records except for the internet, which was yeah. was one thing that we could we could do. Now the, the, the thing that well probably the, the genesis of everything the genesis of my whole career of the, the biggest marketing insight i ever had which proved to be a phenomenal one really in the, in the end was when i started at Roadrunner in 95 96 it was shocking to me that we were selling you know 100 hundreds of thousands of cd's a year and not having any way to contact the person who bought that cd okay and The first thing I did really within the even for the Roots record I remember was the first time first one we did. I insisted that every Roadrunner album that ever released we ever released had to have a blow-in card. Mm -hmm. You know, like a card with a with a mailing address to send back to us. And because we didn't have much money, I couldn't even afford a like postage paid to even oblige the person to stick Mm -hmm. a stamp on it. Mm -hmm. And um and in those days, no email, right? It was a physical mailing address and you mailed us your physical home address, and yep. within a year, we'd collected over twenty thousand cards. Mm-hmm. And I would go to the mailing box, the PO box, once a week and just pick up a huge pallet of blow-in cards. Mm-hmm. And I knew mm-hmm. that we we're onto something. It's like, holy shit, this is this is something incredible here. We've got a we're building a direct line to the fans. Mm-hmm. And I had to hire like a kid just three days a week to do data entry because in those days it was just hand, just just going through piles of cards and typing in their addresses into a into a primitive Excel, like a primitive spreadsheet. And, uh, and that, I ne- we never stopped doing that. And by when the Slipknot record released, one day I remember going to the PO box about three weeks after Slipknot exploded and there was like... I opened, it was like a comic, a sitcom where I opened the PO box and it just like fell, this giant pile of cards fell on me and there was fucking pallets of them. The guy at the PO, the guy at the post office said, he knew me, he's like, John, you better come around here. And he opened a door and it was like boxes of them. They just did like 30,000 cards in like a week and a half. Wow. And I was like, fuck, we really have got something serious going on here.
2: Yeah.
1: And, um, We ended up just getting them all in and we had a huge even like then, you know, 99, 2000, we had a database of 30, 40, 50,000 and then another watershed was Sony to their credit when we did the deal and sorry, when we had only 20,000, Sony agreed to commemorate the deal with Roadrunner. They funded a sampler CD. This is 96, right? Years before there was internet and free music Mm -hmm. and we did a free... CD of all the big hits of the year, like all the Roadrunner sort of forth- forthcoming release wrecked singles, mm-hmm. and we mailed it to twenty thousand people. Fuck in the mail, yeah. So in the mail, you're a Roadrunner fan, you got a CD in the mail, and it blew all on people. Sony's dime. All on Sony's dime. That just speaks to the credibility, doesn't it? It was so awesome, and it blew people's minds. They were just like, because that just didn't happen in those days. It was just a fuck it, like, wow. And our reputation as a label, just, you know, the word of mouth reputation of just what Roadrunner was capable of and our affection for the fans. Mm -hmm. And then we just built up a database and we did lots of, we used to mail people newsletters, physical, like fanzine type things. And then we set up a, then in the, I'm not a tangent about digital, but it was sort of the genesis. I'm all about how they, how the how they innovated. I'm all about how Roadrunner innovated and this is like gold well then we created our own magazine because i just said well fuck this there's no more metal mags and we need to, we need one so we created a magazine called outsider magazine and okay. we published that for three or four years maybe even five years like once a quarter and we did that and then we did a yearly catalog campaign where we put a fat catalog with reviews of every because no one giving us no one's giving us reviews fuck them Let's make our own review magazine. And we reviewed every single title in a catalogue that was like a 36 or 48-page glossy thick catalogue. Mm-hmm. Mail it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Mail it to everybody. We used to spend like 50 grand on, you know, annual catalogue campaign and we would sell 120,000 catalogue albums in a year.
2: Wow.
1: So <laughs> it was just so effective. And this was all the sort of genesis of, this understanding that digital is really just a means to connect directly with your audience, right? And that was the key insight that I had was like, we we can't rely on these third-party media. They don't like us. It's the us versus them. No one wants to write about us. No one likes our shit. Mm -hmm. So let's make our own shit. And so make a mag, make a catalog so we can review our own records. And then let's set up a website. So then there was Metal Shop. Let's build a database. So we used to use a program called Goldmine just to do sort of crude CRM and emails. And then it was, let's set up an email program and then let's set up a MySpace page when that started. And um, and it kept growing. And then we just, just out of necessity and out of curiosity and a willingness to try anything, I got pretty good at sort of, well, it wouldn't be digital. It was probably just direct marketing, just understanding the need to bypass the gatekeepers and the, cha- the traditional channels and go rogue and do your own thing. And we would sell our own, we used to print Roadrunner t-shirts with our logos and sell shitloads of them because the the label and the brand had such powerful brand equity. We would, we would sell, you know, a thousand Roadrunner t-shirts a year Mm. at 30 bucks a pop. And it was like, yeah, keep selling baseball caps, all that stuff. So then when, um, in 2007, I think it was about March or April, I was in New York for a company conference and, they had a set an exercise, you know, when you're on a retreat, everyone's away and then they set up a company exercise for us to break up into groups of 10 or 20 and to do a project where we had to present back to the to the group that night with a, mm-hmm. it was like a digital marketing project. Like, you know, how would you sell a record to, if someone was walking past you in the street, I don't even remember what it was. And I'd also just finished my MBA. I did an MBA um, to try and improve my business skills and, um, for three years between 2003 and 2006. So mm-hmm. I got pretty good at strategy and, and and some digital stuff that I did in the MBA, some formal business training. Mm-hmm. So then I did this, I remember being in this group at this retreat and um, basically commanding, you know, basically owning the project and doing the deck myself and then presenting it to the team and winning. And Case just coming up to me at the end of the night and going, uh, John, uh you're gonna you need it in new york i need you here in th- within three months you, are you good and i was like uh oh, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah maybe better talk to the <laughs> about that and uh she agreed and then by by september we'd moved to new york
0: as if that's fucking meant you know what's really weird marcus turner sent me a picture of that very retreat yesterday oh did he yeah yeah, I'll yeah
1: yeah, that'd be great. Well, Marcus is a great... He's one of my... Who's one of my best mates in the company. So, he's, he's a colossal fella.
0: Yeah. He's, he's... Yeah, I just put up the episode of him and he talks about the arcade stuff in quite a lot of detail. <laughs> it's very... It's very interesting because obviously part of the project is trying to track the history of the label, as you might imagine, and seeing the dominoes, which dominoes are the ones
1: which start the Warner acquisition. It's interesting because he yeah, gets well, half he, of that. Marcus would have, he would have gone... He would have hated that arcade stuff, I would imagine, just... You know, it was just, it was such a, it was just such poor brand management. Yeah. I
0: mean, a a lot, I think a lot of the appeal of the arcade stuff was the territories because they had offices everywhere. And if you own the offices, you own, you have a foothold in, in this smaller, lesser known territories. And I think that was partially the idea, but at the same time, they were a pop compilation company, which is where case was like, great, we can put some more revenue on the back burner to keep the lights on in case Nickel Black split up, you know?
2: Yeah. Well,
1: it was that. I mean, yes, the heart was in the right place, but it was just a just a poor brand. It was poor brand strategy. It was just not. It just the implementation, like the the, the out that we used to call them opcos. That was what Australia was, and what you know all the, the non Holland businesses we all called them opcos. Mm. And so all the opcos were just like not nah, not doing it. And so know, yeah, the implementation just was just um, dreadful.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are some adverts in the trades. I think um, mostly in Billboard, where they do say road uh, Arcade, and it's it's rare. I will give you that when I'm it's doing the right. research, it's rare to see it. it um, right. So, as we're moving to your role into the new media, what it's called its titles new media, but we call it effectively kind of digital and otherworldly things. What kind yeah. of innovations did spring up there? So is this, this is the post 2007. This is in role. Yeah. Tell me about so, you know, what happened there because we're, we're entering the digital revolution and the higher piracy now, aren't we?
1: Yeah. So so I came in as Senior VP of New Media and and Global Business Development was my formal title. And it was not really a, a clear remit, but it was sort of a bit, it reminded me a bit like day one at Roadrunner and um Records, like, here's a box going, you know, it was like, that's your title, John, be the New Media guy and it was a bit intimidating it was quite intimidating because you know I, I knew a bit about the american market but of course i just you know i was a fish out of water and I, I i've been mm. in new york plenty of times and I, I sort of had a reasonable understanding of the of the culture and everything but i just not of course lived there and um and the, the, it was a soft landing and that because i'd been 12 years in the business and knew everybody it wasn't like who's this weird new guy with an Aussie accent walking around that like nearly everybody knew who I was and I came with a fairly uh, uh you know a, a good reputation right I wasn't I hadn't made any enemies or anything I was in fact everyone was very pleased to see me so it was quite a good um it was probably the best possible reception you could get because mm-hmm. I wasn't uh, people were like oh just great you're here mate let's you know let's Let's make magic together. So that was really nice, and I felt always felt really welcome. And I often think back about that and think that the um, I wish that Australians could emulate sometimes the kind of level of warmth and welcoming that I know the Americans gave me because they seem they're a lot they're a lot nicer at times than Aussies can be. I think at times about some of this shit, but that's a side story. Anyway, <laughs> um, the they were the New York office kind of said to me, you know, just. Just run, run digital, run new media and sort out our shit. And the first thing I did as a major decision, a bit, again, sort of following on from my thing earlier I said about the need for a better direct relationship with, with the, the fans was I just took one look at the, the email situation and it was an absolute disaster. Mm. They were basically sending emails using like Excel spreadsheets and Outlook. And it was just it was so bad, I just was horrified. And in those days it just it was wild west too. There was just not a lot of um rules and regulations about that stuff that you have now. And so the private I mean, just it was just like, oh, can you email me the list? And someone's just got an attached fucking list with twenty thousand people. It's just an absolute mess. Mm. And I just thought that's the quintessential sort of low-hanging fruit, all the cliches, the quick wins, the low-hanging fruits, all that bullshit. So I went, At least if I can wrestle this email thing down and show the business here that this is how important email marketing is and mm-hmm. cleaning up this data. And I remember um, they would, Doug Keogh and a few of the guys would often trumpet how big their database was, you know, like we have 900,000, I don't remember what the number was, but it's just a huge number. And they used to say on their marketing materials and the, Madeline and some of the other marketers, the heads of marketing that would say on their um, one sheets, you know, 900,000 marketing e- emails and blah, blah blah. And I remember mm. after doing a, a cleansing um, activity on the email list and using a professional company to do like an audit, it was like a poor, it was down to like from 900 again. I don't know if was something so extraordinary, like 900 to something like 87,000 and I remember, of I remember users
0: are uh, actually yeah, of real
1: of real people of not yeah. of like email addresses that were still alive and attached to a human being yeah and i remember going <laughs> into one of my first sort of you know work in progress meetings and going oh i got some good news and bad news <laughs> right good news we fixed the email list bad news it's one tenth of the size that it used to be and it was like up in it, what, what the fuck john what are you talking about and I was like, well, we've got we've got to just start from scratch because we've just we've got ten years of accumulated junk and no one's ever cleaned it, and it's just a, it's just. But the, the, from there, I mean, case and everyone said, all right, John, well, we trust you, you know. So we, I remember just almost like a fateful day, just pushing this sort of eject button on like eight hundred thousand emails and
2: <laughs> taking that
1: responsibility, but saying that's just we have to start from scratch and build this properly with clean with clean data and clean email, and so we just did by you know.
2: So it was a it was, it
1: was a big um it was a big momentum to I managed to get, you know we moved the business we used Exact Target which later became Sales Salesforce um you know I did a deal with Exact Target to do all of the email marketing and we really s- matured and, and created a sophisticated email marketing program for Roadrunner which I was pretty proud of and that was really good and we built it up over the five years I was there to you know many hundreds of thousands and then. We we developed the Facebook page and you know and those MySpace was still big then too so we you know we just did that but the big thing that I was the most proud of um, but it took one failed attempt to do it right was I set up a website in about my third year called Sign Me To roadrunnerrecords.com. Right. and it was a A&R, it was like a, a public facing A and R portal. And it was, again, a bit like the beast about Metal Shop. It was like Metal Shop 2.0, again, where the idea was that people could submit their demos and then the public would be crowdsourcing the ratings of it and our A&R guys would have a console on the back to see what the best highly rated music of the day was and all these charts. We created all these charts. And we got about 90,000 bands within a six-month period signing up to this and even some really good bands that surfaced and... Mm -hmm. But it was again another one of those classics where it was a, a remarkable product and it got huge um, viewership and it got a lot of attention, but didn't get a lot of buy-in. And you know, from the A and R guys, they just didn't dig it that much. It was, it was you know, it was, it was challenging they do one fucking telling what band is good, do they? No, it wasn't, and so it was the right solution for the wrong problem or the wrong solution to the right problem. I don't know. You know, it was <laughs> a lot of things I've done in my life have sort of been a little too not to blow my smoke but just a bit more probably too far ahead of where the market was and then later if i only thought of it later not earlier it might have been a better time because it was probably a little premature where the world was in 2009 2010 Mm -hmm. whereas nowadays it's just be like de rigueur to think that that's normal right and so we made this and got thousands tens of thousands of bands signing up and it was obviously a heartbreaking thing when warner (laughs) warner when we got the bullet they just shut that down too so that was a wow. shocker but um because a heap of effort went into that And i still think that's if someone said john in your whole life your whole career what's one of the you know what what's some of the highlights of things you've ever done i would say that sign me to website was an absolute fucking cracker of a site and a really good idea
2: mm-hmm. and a
1: lot of it would have had a lot of promise and, t- and if it had been supported it, if it kept going i think it would be a phenomenon now again i think that others might disagree But what I did was really a lot of housekeeping and hygiene in the Mm -hmm. first couple of years, just to get the the fundamentals in order that were really in quite a bad shape. We redid the website too; we completely revamped the Roadrunner Records uh, site, and just yeah, just basic hygiene, just to get just to get mobilizing for the digital age, modernize and. Those were days when, you know, giving away a CD single like as a download for free would just have everybody like uh, hand-wringing for days on end whether we should give a single away as a free download. And, you know, even I would think that and there was lots of piracy stuff that we were – it wasn't as clear to us how formidable piracy was, although it was killing us. We weren't aware of how the magnitude of it really was. Sure. And ringtones ringtones was massive. I mean – these are all nostalgia things. Guitar Hero was freaking massive. Dragon Force wouldn't exist without Guitar Hero, right? Yeah. I mean, it was just—it yeah. was just—all of those things were great, and and all underpinning it was, you know, just extraordinary business we were doing with Nickelback with all the right reasons in 2007, 2008, just kept selling and selling and selling. So, Roadrunner US was an awesome experience for me because you know I'd never been living overseas before. I'd never never experienced that sort of thrown in the deep end into a, into a somewhat alien culture and fend for yourself. And it was pretty, it was a extraordinary trial by fire to get through to the other side. It was just such a shame in a a way that it ended sort of quite abruptly, but at least Mm. when it ended, it was sort of um, with, with other compadres right? It wasn't, it wasn't the shame of walking the aisle with a a box and, Everyone not looking your way. Um, it was much more of a case that we all, you know, most of us got a lot of us got whacked, and we all just went down the pub that night, and kind of all knew it was. We all sort of saw the writing on the wall for the last six months. Yeah, and so you know that that to come back full circle about you know we're saying earlier around the um, the brand and the issues, it, it was really that last couple of years where. I felt that the, the the company was really going off, you know, needed to be correct course and the deal we did with, um, and again, none of this is resenting in the sense of like the people involved would think they were marvellous people and I liked them and there was no hard feelings, but mm. more just from business and from strategy and from brand. I just thought the deal we did with Loud and Proud didn't yep. dig that one bit. I thought that that was just, what we got into the mode of doing was just A, we just thought we could, the best use of funds from Nickelback was trying to find more Nickelbacks. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a dreadful um, approach and that what we should have done, and I advocated, I wrote papers to to Case and to others, I wrote strategy memos and I begged them, I said, with all of this money we've got, we should buy Century Media and we should buy Nuclear Blast and we should buy every fucking metal label that exists and create this this just absolute unstoppable one-stop metal brand that's right roadrunner of, of all the spine farm before they were all bought by the majors which they ended yeah. up being bought by the majors I would or I kept saying we should buy century media we should buy nuclear blast we should mm-hmm. we should buy the you know um, napalm records we should buy them that's fascinating. Uh, we should buy rise above we should just just use our nickelback money and double down on metal not use the nickelback money on trying to find more nickelbacks because nickelback is a once a lifetime lightning in a bottle. There's a string of dead nickelbacks every major label can afford. They can afford to die on the die on a cross to find more nickelbacks because they can lose more money than we can. But we yeah. should consolidate our brand as the definitive hard rock and metal label and use all of this money to create this legacy of metal that can see us through for 20 more years. Yeah, I, would, I was begging them to do that. And I, I mean, I don't know who you speak to, but I would say, I mean, I would do it in meetings. I would say, give them memos. I would, I, I remember um, being thrown out of a meeting. We had a listening session uh, with the, with all the executives, the head of Mark, Jonas, Madeline, all the bosses were there, Harlan in New York. And for me, the the Nadia of the company, the worst Thing we ever did was the lenny kravitz record that to me was the really the, the absolute depths of plumbing the depths of music and of taste and of everything and everything that i had started for you know in 1995 when i started at roadrunner the idea then that we would release a, a lenny kravitz record which was the kind of antithesis of sort of the the, the ethos and the whole thing this kind of What I thought was just this kind of horrible funk, light rock, wannabe poser. Just can't bear it, right? The music's Mm -hmm. horrible, and um, and I just this record just got played, and I remember hearing the first single and going, case going around the room like, "What do you think?" And I said, "This is just horrible, case. It's just this is just a disaster." And him going, "Get out!" and kicking me out of the kicking me out of the room. (laughs)
0: it was one of the death hurt for you then
1: oh but everyone was just silent staring at their shoes and i just thought i can't let you know i've been here 17 for 16 years i can't i can't just cannot sit here and let this label that i worship and love and you know likes my life Mm. being being killed by this kind of mediocrity these releases right and that lenny kravitz record sold nothing it sold they spent a fortune on it like million i think more than a million bucks and so i think it scanned like 7,000 records I mean it was an absolute insane bomb and and then you know we we put out a garbage Queensryche record which was trash and I fucking loved Queensryche in the 80s Mm. but then this record was garbage and then we put out a Sammy Hagar record that was crap and we just kept putting out these kind of a meatloaf record for Christ's sakes. I mean, we just, we're just putting out like all this garbage in the last six months to a year that just had no affinity and no connection to the brand and was wasting time, effort and resources in this mad trying to dash to try to fill the gaps and fill the holes, which by then it was largely too late because what we should have been doing four or five years earlier was banking all that Nickelback money and even some of the Slipknot and other money and ex- and saying, you know what, Nickelback was a one was like a one-off chance to get this giant success let's now go back to the roots of the business not underground death metal finding more obituaries let's just get all the metal labels that exist and all the rock and hard rock and just be that label for the world and be happy with that Mm
0: -hmm. That's that's it's so crazy dude because so many people have different perspectives on the downward trajectory I've heard many stories which I won't repeat because they're strictly off record, unfortunately. But that, tell me about this. All this, this stuff was all on Loud and Proud, right? Oh, the
1: majority of. Before. I mean, I don't know. If, I think a lot of it was. I think Lenny was, Sammy was, Meatloaf was. Um, there was no, there no. was a
0: design like arm for Legacy Acts which was going to yeah. be pushed through Loud and Proud, which I think was Warner and Roderick at the same yeah, time. It was. It, but it was this is the up of... This is it. This is where. In my in my research for it, this is where the latches are in now, from Warner. It no longer yeah. is this like the Universal arrangement where Universal say we want slip not we want Nickelback, and we'll let you do everything else, Roadrunner. Mm. This it's a complete um, departure.
1: I don't know if Warner again. I couldn't. I don't. I wouldn't know the full history of how much influence. I know Leo was definitely involved in like the Lenny stuff. He definitely had. Leo was definitely, you know, had, had his finger in the pie and was, you know, and then we sort signed Young the Giant, which Ron Berman, who's one of my best mates, signed, and he found them, and then, and then we had another young guy come in as the A&R guy, and we had um, guys from Warners like Mike Eastland, who's still there, coming in, and so it felt like there were these sort of Warner cats who kind of were, were coming in from the sides, and there was perhaps some surveillance going on. I mean, paranoia perhaps, but... You know, there was perhaps uh, you know conversations that were happening inside the inner sanctum, perhaps were leaving the inner sanctum. One might think, and um, and they loud and proud did. It wasn't you know they were putting these records out, and it may be that they were doing the lion's share of the A and R and all that. But what was happening was just taking up a lot of oxygen, yeah, taking up a lot of space that could have been used on on building the brand and the business in more productive ways. And so mm-hmm. we were. Diverting energy and resources to doing that stuff when we should have been even putting out like we did a corn deal. Now corn's good and that you know, but the corn record was okay. But we we're fine. We, what we were trying to do was just fill the gaps with heritage and older acts, and not like saying, well, let's find these labels that have that have got great track records, like the Spine Time Century Medias and, and and rock labels that exist, and get them and and grab them. And 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 build on their AR that they've got like tons of metal and rock going on in their world too. And be the best of all of that because the brand, no matter what the bosses felt, the punters were speaking. And that was they still thought Roadrunner was a rock and metal label. Yeah. And anything we ever tried just really didn't work to to try to deviate from that. That's our brand was just branded into us like a brand. Yeah. And that's what we were. And That's how we were known, and so really we should have been focusing our energies on that. But by the time that last year or so, when the the, the wheels were falling off, happened, it was too late, right? You couldn't. It was because ANR takes four or five years sometimes to to bear fruit, and so we were in a horrible position where we were trying to just buy acts off the shelf to fill the gap. So it was no real. I'm not certainly wanting to be negative about Loud and Proud or whatever they were doing, or any of these other. Things it was more just where I felt we it was about what we should have been doing, not whether mm-hmm. they those acts or that that stuff. Although yeah, Lenny, I definitely believe that the record that was handed in was unlistenable and just horrible.
0: Mm-hmm. So it was
1: also that was one where I feel like the music absolutely was just not up to snuff. Yep. But um but outside of that, I felt like we were just in the wrong. We just heading in the wrong direction for a while. And we should have, it was too late by the time the, the time it kind of Warner's wrapped it up in many ways, it was sort of too late. It was too late to sort of do a U-turn or course correct. We had, we had it, we should have been course correcting 06, 07, 08 when yeah. we were really banking the big Nickelback money.
0: That, and from my perspective, when I was a wee nipper, um, that was like Trivium and Killswitch era Devil Drivers coming in. We were getting yeah. like a new breed yeah, and it felt like it was going to last forever. And some of those bands are still definitely going strong, but it, it didn't... It didn't... How do I put this? The trajectory of those bands and that kind of music didn't play into Roadrunners' core. It went off and that gent happened, tech metal happened, metal, conventional metalcore happened, yeah. and it happened outside of Roadrunners' watch when it shouldn't have done it. Yeah.
1: Right, and then you know the whole uh, resurgence of power metal and like all the Swedish metal that was coming out, and all those awesome. I mean, Ghost, right? Mm-hmm. Rise Above sign Ghost, and then they went to Universal. We missed them. We tried to sign Ghost, um, and just just we should have if we hadn't been more on the ball in that mid period of the early to mid two thousands when we were banking, we would have probably captured more of those bands. Right? We would have yeah. if pace had if we had the whole. Not just that, but if Case and others had said, "Yes, we will adopt this strategy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we won't look for more Nickelbacks. We will, like, we'll accept Nickelback as a one-off, and we'll mm-hmm. we'll build this business again." Like, we'll, 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 but I think that you know, again, it's not a criticism of Case. It's his company, right? And he yeah. he wanted to do what he wanted to do, and I, I can sound like a bit annoyed, or pissed off, but it was more just. It was it was sort of how it ended. Like I sort of figured that if we had a found, I mean, of course, what, the history would be different if we had a found more Nickelbacks. We had Theory of a the Dead Man, did okay, but lots of money was spent on that band, and you know, probably didn't never rose to the heights of Nickelback, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, and we had some others, but nothing got close to Nickelback. So, but if we had a found one or two more Nickelbacks, it'd be a different story. It'd be saying, fuck, everyone it was just a wonderful strategy. How good was that? But as yeah. it ended up, it just kind of ended up, you know, sort of where it all got sort of wrapped up and now I guess it's just a, it's a label, oh, it's, a paint, it's a it's a sign on a wall in a Warner office, right? So, uh, and it doesn't exist like it did 20 years. Now, whether independent labels can still exist like they did 20 years ago is another moot point, right? Is there, mm. is there a world that indie labels, some, some could argue they can because there are independent labels still thriving and getting on with business. Whether it would ever have been at the scale and ambition that, say, Case would have wanted is different.
0: Yeah. And that's why it's so special. Because imagine the, traje- the trajectory if it didn't... Imagine in that period, at the, the hot point in 2001, let's say Nickelback came out six months earlier, Silver Side Up comes out, goes five times platinum, or ten times in the States. There's no need for an investment from IDJ. We're still, you're still at Roadrunner going to Metal gigs every night. Yeah. It could see yeah. it could have been a completely different we could be in a, a completely different musical landscape
1: yeah well that's true and I mean metal is a you know it's a religion for some it is for me in a way and it's been what you know it's my guiding force of what I listen to almost exclusively and yeah. so I've got a particular opinion that's no doubt different from others you'll talk to who you know as, a, as I'm sure you will who, you know guys like Marcus aren't sworn metal guys right so he probably has a different and he had a different view from sort of the, the the inner sanctum in Holland. So he yeah. would have seen things probably quite different to me. And so everyone's going to come with a different opinion, right or wrong, about what the decisions should have been. Yeah. Um, and, and I was certainly, I'm, I'm much more, I'd be more like with, the, with Monty and others in the more the, the old stuck-in-the-mud metal guys, right? Whereas others might say, well, don't be an idiot. That's... Would never have worked that metal strategy. You should have done this and that. And that's fair enough too. It's good. It's a. It's a. It's a good pub debate.
0: Yeah, definitely. definitely. What do you think the legacy is of the label? This is like the big, the big, the big rounding up question.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on who's looking at the legacy. For me personally, it's the most satisfying. I mean, i I love what I do now, and I'm building my own company, and I can and just you know every day I have a sense of pride of that. But in terms of life, career, things that I've done, I mean, of course, it's still the, the, the most time of my, the lion's share of my life in my career was at Roadrunner. And, you know, I look at it f- fondly and any, any, um, even if from this podcast, this conversation, I have no bitterness and no, no um, negative feelings. I mean, I may, I may have certainly around the time when I got, got sacked, but as we all probably all did, all of us <laughs> who lost our jobs, but, um, I don't um, hold any now. I just have an absolute love and fondness of the time. And I just know if there was reunions, it would be hugs and and fist bumps and everything with everybody. There's no hard feelings and it's all just, you know, warm fuzzies, right? Because it was such an extraordinary um, time uh, to to be alive and to be in the music industry at that peak of sort of from mid nineties to like, you know, um, 2012 for me was just, unbelievable time to be involved in music and metal and rock and all of that yeah. so legacy for me personally what best time of my life for the world it just showed that in and for australia i think there's still a lingering legacy that people do I made some mine in the music industry still just say what you guys did at roadrunner has just never been repeated it's just a it's just the fact that you guys punch so higher above your weight mm-hmm. you know we were just we 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 at a certain point, we, I think we even got a point or two of market share in 2002 or three with how much business we were doing. We, yeah. You know, we were, we were so prominent and we made such a mark, even like with the, the, the guys, if you spoke to the guys in major labels now that we worked with and said, you know, what do you think of Roadrunner and do you remember that? They'd be like, oh, my God, yeah. They, they, just, they just absolutely killed it when they were, when they were chugging along. And yep. I think the same, again, in the US, people just, for the business side of things, people would respect Roadrunner that we just did so many amazing things for a label that was small and indie. Yep. And then for the punters, the, the label, most people who are Nickelback fans probably neither here nor there that they're on Roadrunner. But for so many people still to this day, and I reckon for millennials and Zoomers even who are, like, dredging up the catalogs, there's this fascination with Roadrunner that there's this there was this phenomenon that was around from the 90s that just reinvented metal and rock and mm. owned it. Just completely fucking owned it. Yeah. And, it. um, it's pretty good, right? I mean, if you can't, you can say a lot of things about what you've done or what you've been a part of, but if you were part of, for me, if you were part of doing something that was just your, your passion in life and the culture that you love, then you helped build it from, in your market from scratch, which is what I was lucky enough to do and then go to New York and have a hand in that as well. Um, mm. uh, it's, it's not, not a lot of people not a lot of people get to do that. And that's, yeah. that's that's an awesome
0: thing to have been a part of. Right. Let's wrap that up there. That was awesome. That was really, really enlightening. And especially into like the two thousand period, because I try and tackle this chronologically.